Let's pray. Our Father, you are the God of life. There are many, many who are trying to snuff life out. The question was asked, will we speak up for the little ones? Those who don't have a voice. I pray that today, Lord, through this message, that you will strengthen our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we've, what we've experienced, that our emotions won't get in the way, but you will use our emotions to channel our actions. Lord, you're calling us to action in defense of life, what you've given us. So, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, that you will help us today. Help us to understand. Help us to apply what we're going to learn today. And we thank you, Lord, for life. We thank you for life in Christ, who has forgiven us of all of our sins if we're in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I begin this morning with a clarification. And uh, the song we heard, of course, is Phil Kage's song, Little Ones. And uh, it's just powerful, powerful song. And to say I feel very deeply about this topic is a vast understatement. But, you know, it's all in how we see things and how we package them. And uh, this episode began last Friday, Friday night. And I was up late, you know, as I normally am on Friday nights, trying to get things together for, for Sunday service and I went to bed with this message that I'm presenting and, and delivering with it on my mind, but uh, I was absolutely wrung out. I was emotionally drained, and I was just dead tired. Well, I woke, I woke up suddenly the next morning, 7 o'clock, and as, as I looked at it, I got out of bed as fast as I could, and Kitty was already downstairs making coffee, and uh, she wasn't moving with much sense of urgency, as she would be if it were Sunday morning. I looked at her and I said, are you planning on going to the building today to pray? And then she looked at me like, you're strange. (laughs) What are you doing? Um, Today is Saturday. (laughs) And I said, with a sense of urgency, I said, are you sure? (laughs) And so she went went to the calendar and and lovingly and kindly pointed out, I went to work yesterday. (laughs) And then it dawned on me, yesterday was indeed Saturday, not Sunday. And I actually had to sit down and process this valuable bit of information because I was far from being finished with putting things together for today. So I was panicked. And so when I realized that indeed yesterday was Saturday instead of Sunday, I began to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, actually, that's, that's wrong. I thought about singing the Hallelujah Chorus. But then, all of a sudden, I began to relax, and uh, Kitty and I had a great time over coffee and before her mentoring date with Natalie, and then life was good. (laughs) I was able to relax and then put together the things uh, that I needed to put together for today, and 
Truly, though, a changed perspective makes all the difference, doesn't it? Interacting with my beloved convinced me that I was wrong, and gloriously so. I was so happy about that. And from that moment on, the rest of the day was powerful and intense, and I finished putting things together all because I had a change of perspective. And our time of corporate worship so far has been a wonderful had an unforgettable. And Jenny and, and Herbie and, and, and Angie as well, and, and all the families, and it was wonderful. And then here in the presentation of the East End Pregnancy Center, just, just a celebration of life. It's fantastic, good stuff. And today we get a chance to once again focus on life, what the Lord has done, what the Lord has given every one of us. As we read earlier today, that the Lord has knit us together in our mother's wombs. If you're alive today, you were knit together in your mom's womb, handmade by Jesus. Indeed, we praise him because he is, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our soul knows that so well. And to make matters even better, the Lord did not leave us out there by ourselves. No, he placed us in families, didn't he? Mothers, fathers, children, grandchildren, siblings, cousins, and on and on and on. And even more glorious, those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior and those who Christ knows and that we're part of the family, these relationships will continue, not only in this life, but in the life to come forever. Today, we celebrate life honoring the Lord and enjoying life that He has given us. But as we know, today is our Sanctity of Life Sunday. We take time out and to remember that all human life is sacred. Every human being inside and outside the womb is made in the image of our Creator, God. Every person is of extreme worth and value. But practically since the beginning of God's very good creative act when He made the pronouncement, let there be, and there was, death has been with us, except for that very short time. God said to our first parents, don't eat. The day that you eat, you're going to die. But what did they do? Knuckleheads. They ate delicious but deadly fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Since that day, we've lived out our own death certificate. We have assumed a position reserved only for God and made many pronouncements about who should live and who should die. We believe that we have that right. But now there are many reasons why we think it's good and right for fellow image bearers of God to die at our own hands. There is one good reason, though, one reason that God gave us for killing others, and that's called capital punishment. God set that up. God gave Noah this command. After the Lord caused a global flood, a judgment upon our wickedness. He told Noah, in essence, if anybody murders someone, they themselves are to be killed. There's a lot of people who say, no, we shouldn't do that. But God said that we should do that. Though tragic. Capital punishment is reserved for those who take the life of fellow image bearers of God. But there are also wicked reasons why we take the lives of others. At the senior end, we have 
euthanasia. Physician-assisted suicide. Now, some people take their own lives in this manner because of ongoing, unbearable pain. And others, though, have euthanasia forced on them because they are an excessive burden to their families, among many other reasons. But this is, again, we humans living out our certificate of death, a curse, because we decide what is good and what is evil. On the other side of life, at the very beginning stages, both in the womb and nearly born or newly born, there is abortion and there is infanticide. Because we are like God, knowing good and evil, we've taken upon ourselves to pronounce which children should live and which ones should die. And globally, we're putting into practice this knowing of good and evil or thinking that we know good and evil. We're doing it in massive numbers. According to the World Health Organization, there are, on average, every year between 40 and 50 million persons aborted. Every year. This past year alone, that amounted to almost half of the deaths in the population of the world. Staggering numbers, to say the least. We're so concerned with COVID-19, aren't we? And the thousands who have died with it worldwide, yes, it's tragic that, that anyone dies with a disease. However, to be precise, people, many, many people, the vast majority of people don't die from COVID. They die with COVID. They die with comorbidities surrounding it. But how many of those are so afraid of themselves and others catching this virus have the same or greater concern over abortion and infanticide, which are far deadlier than COVID ever thought of being? Today, as we remember the Holocaust called abortion and increasing numbers infanticide, let's begin with what God's Word says regarding how heinous He sees murder, particularly the killing of our own children. As I mentioned, God told Noah in Genesis 9, 6, that if a person who murders someone else, he forfeits his own life, presumably by those authorized to do so. The government authorities are supposed to be set up in, in, in some measure to take care of those kinds of issues. In Exodus... God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And the sixth one simply says, you shall not murder. Time fails us to even begin to address the absolute horror of infanticide practice in the Old Testament. Infanticide. We know what that means, right? The demonic pagan gods, it was believed, required parents to offer their alive children as burnt offerings something that the Lord actually said had not even entered his mind through the prophet Jeremiah. As we move through the New Testament, we, the commandment about not murdering fellow image bearers of God stands. But what about abortion, specifically in the New Testament? Though the New Testament is silent on this issue, there were several influential Christians back in the day that wrote about it. Let me cite just one writing. It was a training manual of sorts, this writing, written in the latter part of the first century, about the same time that the New Testament was being written. When John and Peter and, and Paul were writing Scripture, 
this training manual was written. This manual was for those who were interested in becoming Christians, which is interesting, isn't it? See, they approach things a little bit differently than what we do when we're talking about giving people the gospel. See, we normally lay out the facts of the gospel, and then we get them to commit, don't we? Sign on the dotted line. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And then after that, then we give them the fine print of what it means to believe, what it means to practice as a Christian, right? We kind of front load that as, as far as the, getting them to commit. But back then, it was different. First couple of centuries, their idea was to train people first, to basically say, here's what you're getting yourself into if you want to become a Christian. And this training manual called the Didache did such things. As a capstone event, after they went through all that training, through the Didache, then they got baptized. This word Didache means to train, means training. And they were to be trained in in the ways of the Lord and what it means to follow Him. And though the New Testament did not directly address abortion, the Didache did. Again, these are people who were contemporaries with Paul and Peter and James and John and all those guys. Here's what it said. You should not practice magic or witchcraft. You should not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. In other words, you can't kill a baby that's already been born. It's called infanticide. In other words, if a person was to become a Christian in the first couple of centuries, among many other things, Abortion and infanticide were things they did not practice. They did not do this. And not only that, other church leaders saw women back then as those who obtained abortions. They were called murderers. Now today, we're a little bit more nuanced as a church, aren't we? Church of Jesus Christ. But in our nuance, have we watered down the holiness of God? in our churches. But one thing that we can all agree on as true Christians, that God calls abortion murder, for it is the intentional taking of a human life inside the womb. But tragically, to a large degree, there's many people who claim to be Christians. They don't know that God considers abortion an abomination. If we as Christians always hung around with one another, we would probably never talk about this issue, would we? Because we all agree. But we live in the world. As Jesus says, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And so by the grace of God, He has given us the privilege of being involved to be God's witnesses to those who so desperately need to see God's ways lived out in our lives and among one another. And abortion really does rank right up there with the Lord's desire and the world's desperation to see a witness of the culture of life in the church rather than a culture of death. So it is into the marketplace of ideas that we go. We live in a society, don't we, that anything and everything goes. And so what we call a pro-life stance is only one idea among many. Isn't that true? And to hear the mainstream media and organizations like Planned Parenthood and even leaders in liberal churches tell it, it would seem like people who hold to a pro-life stance 
a conservative pro-life stance would be in a vast minority. However, the latest Gallup poll, and Gallup isn't really known for being very conservative, is it? The latest Gallup poll that happened last May shows that this country is divided down the middle. In fact, 48% are people who identify themselves as pro-life. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. 48% and 46% label themselves as pro-abortion. As Christians, we are to set a God-honoring witness to those in our culture. And let's not forget that we still live in a country built on the foundation, at least for a while, of the inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So how do we engage the culture where half of the U.S. citizens hold to a pro-abortion position? Well, the answer is, it's all in how we package the issue. Like anything, words matter, don't they? At least they're supposed to. But, of course, there are some who say they don't believe that. But they can't help themselves. For example, take Speaker of the House, the newly reelected Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. After the House rules were set that forbid gender pronouns, she could not obey those rules. When she introduced herself to talk about the articles of impeachment against President Trump in the space of literally 10 seconds, she used six gendered pronouns. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? The point is, even with the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, words matter. And so I want to equip us in the battle of ideas, in the marketplace of ideas, as we talk to fellow image bearers of God concerning abortion. There are ways that we can do this and, as it were, win that battle, win the argument as the Holy Spirit convicts that person of sin and righteousness and judgment. God can use us in their lives. But the heart of this issue is summed up in one word, personhood. If you get nothing out of this message today, get this. Personhood is the heart of the issue. It's not life in the womb. It's not the fact there's a baby there. It's personhood. That's the heart of the issue. If we're talking about that life begins at conception and all that kind of thing, that's fine, but we're going to lose the argument every single time. And you might be thinking, how can that be? We all know that there's a baby in that womb. Guess what? Pro-abortion people believe the very same thing. They believe that, and they say it. But you might be thinking, there's life in the womb, and life begins at conception. That's a biological fact, and people who don't believe that are science deniers. It is indeed true. As a matter of fact, the Department of Health and Human Services in 2018, they finally admitted, they said in their own literature, that life begins at conception. But those who hold to a pro-abortion idea and the stance, they admit to all of this. They believe that life begins at conception. They believe that there's a baby in the womb. Doesn't matter to me. But what does matter to them is the issue of whether the entity in the womb is a person or not. And this is something that they deny. The person, the one in the womb is not a person. They, They will say that. In a nutshell, the argument goes like this. The human body, to them, means very little because it's just a body. 
But the value that we place on the body includes the idea of personhood. In other words, if I value this body in the womb, it is now a person. If I don't, I can do with this body whatever I want to do with it. That's their argument. That's how they can say, I know it's a baby, but it's not a person. I don't put value on this body, and therefore I can get rid of it. But if I value this body in the womb as a person, then he or she must be protected. That's how the argument goes. If it's only a body, I can destroy it. If the body is a person, I must protect him or her. Do you see how the language works here? And we could spend all day talking about this very issue, but we got to leave it here. But let me recommend for you an outstanding resource. It's called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Amazing, amazing book. And again, the argument is not over whether human life is in the womb. They know that. We know that. Everybody knows that. The argument is over whether the one in the womb is a person. And Nancy Piercy will help you walk through that and help you understand what that really means and how you can really articulate that. So let's go on battle of ideas with the phrase, freedom to choose, freedom to choose. I got a freedom to choose, do what I want with my body. That's the mantra, isn't it? But this is really an unfortunate phrase when you think about it. It's really unfortunate because guess what? Every person has the freedom to choose. Isn't that right? Men have freedom to choose. Youth have freedom to choose. Little kids have freedom to choose. Women have freedom to choose as well. But something is dreadfully wrong with this phrase. When it comes to the abortion issue, here's what's been happening. We have been trained to leave that phrase open and to be okay with that. What we ought to be doing is simply this. We've got to train ourselves, first of all, to simply finish the phrase by asking the question. Freedom to choose what? Freedom to choose what? In the battle of the marketplace of ideas, when we engage people in the abortion issue, we dare not let this go. We need to pin the person down. We need to force him or her to answer the question. Kindly, yes, but force him to answer the question. Okay, freedom to choose. Freedom to choose what? Terminate the pregnancy? End the life? Etc., etc. You see where I'm going with this. And then what can we do? We can step in and, and then define what is in the womb from a personhood standpoint. But we can't get anywhere until we force that person to answer the question. Freedom to choose what? If we have freedom to choose... <laughs> Then we can help them to understand the weakness of their position, give them a, an absurd idea. For example, not to be snarky, pro-life person or pro-abortion person, but do I have the freedom of choice to hit you over the head and take your wallet? Do I have freedom to do that? No, absolutely not. We can give them those kinds of things to highlight the absurdity of their position. And the point is, we've got to help the person understand that no one has the absolute freedom over their bodies, right? Are we able to, for example, hurt ourselves? Do we have the freedom to do that? Last time I checked, it is illegal to commit suicide. And speaking of one's own body, 
because this is what the argument goes, right? I can do what I want with my own body. Guess what? The entity in the womb, the person in the womb, that's not her body. It's somebody else's body, as in the person in the womb. There are two bodies now we're dealing with, two persons we're dealing with here. So let me give you some milestones in the womb. There are two milestones here. 21 days, about three weeks after conception, or even before a woman knows for sure she's pregnant, guess what is present? Heartbeat. Present. About three weeks later after that, guess what can be detected? Brainwaves. So before a woman really, really knows that she's pregnant, you got brainwaves, you got a heartbeat in this person. But the detection is only as good as the sensitivity of the instruments detecting it. What if we had instruments that were even had more sensitivity? Do you think that possibly we could even see that a heartbeat is even earlier or brainwaves can be detected earlier? I would think so. Maybe so. Maybe so. Let me make a brief point here before we go on to the third milestone in the womb. The definition of death includes the absence of two things, a heartbeat, brainwaves. You don't have a heartbeat, you don't have brainwaves, you're dead. We know this, right? That's biological, medical fact. If that's the case, then we ought to conclude that if there is brain, if there is a heartbeat and there are brain waves, we can conclude there's life in this womb. And again, right around the time a woman knows for sure that she's pregnant, there's heartbeat and there are brain waves. That's what's going on in there. A third milestone in the womb is the presence of pain receptors in this tiny person. Family Life Research or Family Research Council, an outstanding, trustworthy organization, published these facts as early as 16 weeks after conception. The person in the womb shows stress responses. In other words, 16 weeks the baby can feel pain. However, the pain is sensed even more acutely by persons in the womb at the beginning of the third trimester, about 20 weeks, more than any other time, more than newborns, more than adults, more than kids, because the mechanisms that inhibit pain are not fully developed at that point. In other words, what's called a late-term abortion, the unborn child feels everything with no shock factor. We know what that means. See, we have shock factors. When we experience something very painful, when I smash my hand with a hammer, guess what I feel? Extreme pain. But my body sometimes goes into shock. Why? Because it's God's way 
of slowly introducing myself to what just happened in my life. Because if it went full force, I couldn't handle it. When a late-term baby is aborted, he or she does not have that. And by the way, you did know that fetal surgery was a thing, right? Babies actually are operated on in the womb or they're taken out briefly and put back in because of things that the docs can do nowadays. And guess what they are ministered to? Guess what, guess what the docs do to these babies late term? They offer them and they administer anesthesia to them. Why? Because babies can feel pain. It's common knowledge. And those who know better are the strongest advocates for late-term abortions. Governor Northam, a pediatric neurologist, he advocates for late-term abortions all the way up to 40 weeks. In advocating it, here's what he said in an interview on a, on a radio program. Here's what he said. Hmm. If a mother's in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. Now think about that. The infant's delivered now. No longer in the womb, but outside the womb. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Did you catch that? An infant already delivered is not inside the womb. It's now a baby on the outside of the womb. So that the parents and the physicians can have a discussion about what to do with this one. What is this now moved into? Infanticide. Governor Northam it advocates for infanticide. How hard-hearted can a person be? And even as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? How we need Jesus. How he needs Jesus. And as Christians, we got the answer. We need to give that to him. We need to pray for him. Our heart naturally knows no bounds. We are capable of doing the most vile things to one another. And finally, let me give you one more piece of weaponry as we engage in the marketplace of ideas here. And that is the word fetus. Now, most of us know what the word fetus means. It's a Latin term. means baby, means offspring. But why is the unborn person referred to as a fetus? How much you, but I don't naturally go around speaking Latin phrases and flattened words, do you? English. English is our first language here, right? So why do people go around saying a Latin word in reference to the person inside the womb? Could it be because they want to confuse the language? Do they want to separate themselves rhetorically from the entity that's in the womb, the person that's in the womb? Because they don't want to face what or who is in the womb. And of course, 
when we're battling this, when they use the word fetus, what do we need to do? We simply ask the question. What does it mean? What do you mean when you say fetus? And then what can we do? We can educate them because they probably don't know with themselves what it means. There's a whole lot more we could say, we should say, but we got to leave it. If the weapons that I have outlined, if we use them, then we have more than enough firepower to do battle in the marketplace of ideas, and we are at war, are we not? And why engage in the battle, though? Why should we do this? The culture now has overwhelmed us, so they think. What's the purpose? Why should we engage in this? Let me suggest to us a very practical reason before we go into what I'm convinced is the ultimate reason. In marketing terms, how big of a business is abortion? Huge. Billions of dollars are given to Planned Parenthood alone. And that doesn't include all the other abortion, quote-unquote, providers, women's health providers, that kind of stuff. And let's not even forget what about all the women that suffer from PTSD? Because there are no, there are, it, this is not a victimless thing. Everybody suffers in this. Everybody does. What I'm about to say is controversial, but it bears out. Do your own research, but I'm convinced. And how much, by the way, of fetal tissue goes into the development of COVID-19 vaccines? I'll just leave that there. And we have even talked about body parts. That's big business, you know. Big business. Do we think that the abortionists, Planned Parenthood, all those people would do this out of the goodness of their hearts? No. It's called follow the money. That's why they do it. That's why they do it, to make money. But now, we engage in the marketplace of ideas. We win the hearts and minds of people. And what happens to the supply? What happens to the demand? It goes away. And if it goes away low enough, guess what the Planned Parenthood people, guess what the abortion providers do? They'll find themselves in that line of work. Maybe doing something good rather than destroy life. But we need to engage this battle one encounter at a time, one prayer at a time, one conversation at a time, because every heart and mind change from being pro-abortion to that of being pro-life is one less unit of demand. Again, follow the money. But we can also multitask. There are many prongs to this attack that we can do. And though it would be a lot more difficult going forward, we can engage politically. Now, we know what's coming. The new administration says within the first 100 days, he's going to codify Roe versus Wade. It's going to be the law of the land. That's his promise. And we will pay for these abortions through the government, through our taxes. However, in this Congress session, in this session, 45 freshman House members are solidly pro-life. And that's good news. We can also get involved practically with this. We heard a great presentation about the East End Pregnancy Center, but how many people know that about pregnancy centers? 
very few and far between. Why? Because the media doesn't want to know, doesn't want us to know about these things. All they want is to say there's one alternative. If you have an unplanned pregnancy, there's only one thing for you. See, the evil one. His mission in life is to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he does. And we can combat that by volunteering, by giving, by praying for groups like this. There's, there's at least five that I know of. But how many of people know these, these things? Very few. Because the enemy doesn't want us to know. That's why. Then there's an incredible technology called ultrasound. Isn't that wonderful? Ultrasound is an amazing thing that goes on. We saw a few pictures in the video. Ultrasound pictures. And the, the, the imagery is, is just phenomenal. I mean, these pictures were old pictures. What they can do now is amazing. Ministries like Preborn or Save the Storks center their work around providing ultrasounds. The hard evidence shows, longitudinal evidence shows that when a woman, 80% of the time, eight out of every 100 women that go into and, and, and they want to get an abortion, when they see their baby through the window of the ultrasound, 80 of them out of 100, they decide then to carry their baby to term. 80 out of 100. It's amazing stats. It's amazing success. Why? Because we're so visually oriented. And when they see the baby in the womb, they say, that is a baby. And I want to carry my baby to term. And they understand that now. They'd stop listening to the lies of the enemy. And let's not forget about adoption, sidewalk counseling, picketing uh, abortion clinics, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. There's so much that we can do. We can do something with this. But the most important thing we can do as Christians in the battle of the, of the abortion issue begins with what we did earlier today, children being dedicated to the Lord fathers and mothers teaching their sons and daughters about being pro-life and who we're all accountable to, the maker of life, the giver of life. We've got to take the initiative as parents, as, as grandparents. We've got to take the initiative to teach our children, to teach our grandchildren the ways of the Lord and what pro-life is all about. And then when it's time to show them, hey, here's what's going on in the womb and perhaps even Here's what happens during an abortion when they're ready, obviously. Again, God is the author of life. He commands us to value it. Every person, whether perfectly healthy or with some abnormality, is supremely valuable. Do you believe this? And just to remind us, every one of us has limitations, don't we? Every one of us has limitations. None of us are perfectly formed. Can we agree with this? We live in a fallen world. And so all those, for example, with Down syndrome or blind or without limbs, pick an abnormality, are all part of the human race and all equally valued by our creator. When God commissioned 80-year-old Moses to go and be his representative to deliver the people out of Egypt, Moses had an argument with God. I'm not able to do what you asked me to do, God. I can't talk very good. But what was God's reply? And I think we miss this 
because we read it over too quickly. But here's what he said. Listen to this. This is amazing stuff when you think about it in, in, in regards of, of what we're talking about. Here's what he says in Exodus 4.11. He says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? You know what mute means, right? Who has made him deaf? You know what deaf means, right? You know what? Who has made him seeing? Who has made him blind? You know what blind means, right? God did this. In his sovereignty, God allowed people to have abnormalities. God takes responsibility even for those with deformities and abnormalities. But again, let's, let's be reminded, we live in a fallen world, don't we? But that's all a reminder that those of us in Christ, there's going to come a time when there will be no more death, no sorrow, no abnormalities, nothing like that. And remember, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign as king in the millennium, babies are still going to be born. Every baby then will be perfect. Then no more abnormalities at all. There will be no blindness. There'll be no deafness, no muteness. All will be perfect in Jesus' kingdom. And so, who are we to say? Who has given us the right to say who lives and who dies, we don't have that right. But what is abortion all about anyway? What is it really all about? Why do image bearers of God insist on getting rid of fellow image bearers of God, regardless of the pain and suffering involved? Ultimate answer is, in re- is rebellion against God and what he demands of us. What was the very first commandment that God gave us as human beings? Have babies. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. It was a good commandment. It wasn't a don't, it was a do. That's what he gave us, very first thing. God intended children to be a blessing. But how often do the corporate we consider them to be a curse or inconvenient or something that we can't afford? or hindrance to our own plans. See, every time a person says, I will abort, that person is telling God once again, I'm like you, God, knowing good and evil. Of course, there are many complications, many anecdotal, personal, often painful stories of people trying to justify their abortion. God calls it sin. God hates it. Abortion and infanticide are abhorrent to God. But on the other hand, as we've seen today, there are things that we as Christians can do. It all comes together in one statement. One person saved in the womb, carried to term, helps fulfill the first mandate our Creator gave us. And just as important, every baby who emerges alive from the womb is one more potential worshiper of God. Do we make that connection? When a baby comes out, That's a potential worshiper of God right there. And we as Christians know the end of the book. Picture the scene. Along with the myriads of angels, the 24 elders, the living creatures, there will be the redeemed. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the ultimate picture. But it takes people coming from the womb to be redeemed. And that's why we engage. We're about to be helping precious souls come to Christ so that they too can be saved and give praise to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. I've got two things before we finish. This has been a gut-wrenching thing for all of us, hasn't it? For me, it has. And I know that some of you here, Sandra had mentioned She's given her testimony about her experiences with abortion. Maybe some of you here either have or know someone who has gone through it. Those who are on Facebook Live know as well. Some of you have gone through the horror of abortion. There's probably a day that that doesn't go by with that. You don't think about the what-ifs and the deep regrets with what you did. An immense sorrow still grips you, even if you had that experience many years ago. We weep with you. We are filled with sorrow for you and with you. But for those of us who have not engaged in that sin, guess what we've done? We've engaged in other sins, many other sins. None of us are innocent. This morning, I want us to reconsider the whole issue of sin. Reconsider. I want us to face it squarely. Not glancing blows, face it squarely. And I know that we're going long, so just just relax a little bit. See, we've all sinned against holy God, all of us. We know that to be true. Any sin, every sin is worthy of God pouring out his eternal wrath on us. Isn't that right? Every one of us as image bearers of God are guilty. Guilty is charged. But how directly have we faced our sin? Our abominations, our transgressions, our iniquities. Have we faced them squarely? See, I'm afraid because we're fallen humans. We didn't do a very good job at that, do we? We do a lot of blaming. We do a lot of softening of this. And it's to our own hurt that we do this. See, how often do we deal with the pain and sin and evil that comes into our lives? How, what do we do? How do we do this? How do we deal with it? We rationalize. We justify. We make things sound a bit nicer to us, not as harsh, so we can somehow feel better about ourselves to save face in our own eyes. See, we have affairs, but God calls it adultery. We are gay and engaging gay love. God calls it sodomy. As single people, we sleep around with benefits. God calls it 
fornication. We tell little fibs. God calls them lies. As students, we cheat on tests. God calls that stealing answers. We are justified in calling people demeaning names like idiot and stupid. But Jesus says that we're in danger of hellfire because we have displayed a murderous spirit. We have an abortion. God calls it murder. So how are we to deal with our wickedness? We start by asking the Lord to show us our heart full force. Psalm 139, as we read, he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is a wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we ask God, we beg him to show us our sin, our transgressions, our abominations. Second, we confess our sin, not our mistakes, not our shortcomings, not our misgivings. See, Jesus didn't die for mistakes, did he? He didn't die for shortcomings, did he? No. You know what he died for? Isaiah 53, 6, 53, 5 and 6 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, not our mistakes. He was crushed for our iniquities, not our faults. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, not low self-esteem of us all. We are to confess our adultery, our homosexuality, our lust, our stealing, our murder. We call it what God calls it. Then having faced it, having faced it full force, what can we do then? We cast it at the feet and, the, and, and at the cross of Jesus. See, we can be forgiven of sin because that's what he died for. He died for our sins. He can, we can be forgiven of abominations, of transgressions, because these are the things that Jesus died for. And having done that, cast our sins at the cross, we receive his tender, amazing, beyond words description of forgiveness. Of forgiveness. Why is it that we oftentimes don't feel forgiven? Because we say, Lord, thank you for forgiving me of my mistakes, of my shortcomings. We have not faced our sin full force. Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for sin and abomination and iniquities. We receive his forgiveness and we bask in that. And we believe him when he says, I forgive you. My blood covers you forever. And having received the forgiveness of God, then we ask him to take control of our lives. 
We can walk in freedom because by His stripes, we are spiritually healed. Sometimes physically, but certainly all the time spiritually. And so this morning, again, or now afternoon, I want us to do business with God. This is so important, so valuable. We can spend a few more moments in the Lord's presence. Not treating our sins lightly anymore. Not, not mislabeling our sins as mistakes or, or unfortunate accidents. This message is too valuable to merely walk out of here with a rousing song. I want us to feel the weight of the glory of God taking our sin as we cast them upon him, as we name the specific sins that we are guilty of. And then having confessed and repented of them, we can trust his promise to forgive us, knowing that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We remember His promise as Christians. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us what? From all unrighteousness, all of it. So we're going to keep things quiet this morning. We're not going to sing at the end. We're not going to take up the offering. But if you want to give, The offering basket is in the back and over here as well. We do ask you to give. It's an act of worship. But do that as the Lord leads you. But we wouldn't spend time now. Let's go to the Lord. Asking God, Lord, show me. Examine my heart. Search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And we deal full force with our transgressions, with our iniquities, with our abominations. We name it the way God names it. And then having done so, we cast it at the feet of Jesus because he died for sins. He didn't die for mistakes. But stay before the Lord as long as it takes. And when you are finished, go out the doors. Take fellowship outside, fellowship hall. So I'm going to pray a prayer to get things going. We're going to turn off Facebook Live. And let me ask you, those who are tuning in, that you would do the same thing that we're doing. Don't just listen. Do this that we're, that we're doing now. That you will participate in this. Confess your sins. Receive his forgiveness. Ask Him to take control and then engage the world with life, life, eternal life. Lord God, the Maker, the Creator, the Judge of heaven and earth, Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We come before you in this very holy, 
moment. This time, Lord, when we're asking you, show us, Lord. Examine our hearts. See if there be any, any wicked way in us. And Lord, bring to our minds those things that we are guilty of. Lord, may we use the terminology that you have given in your word. Lord, may we deal with our sin, our transgressions, our abominations, our iniquities, full force. Because, Lord, you tell us judgment begins in the house of God. Lord, may it begin with us. Cleanse us. May we walk out of here, Lord, with a renewed sense that you indeed are a God who delights in cleansing us. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. May we engage the culture. May we give them life, life, eternal life. And we'll be forever grateful for allowing us just a small part to play in your grand scheme of redemption. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us forgiveness in Christ. And Lord, please help us to maintain an attitude of prayer. 